Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are uh, go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are joining us. This is episode 108. We are recording on Sunday, January 10th, 2021, at about 2.45 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. And it is Sunday, which means, yes, the Seahawks have already played. And Todd... Why was it that they played their worst game when it mattered the most? It was the Rams. And it wasn't necessarily I mean, that, their worst yeah, that, game. It was just, it was the game we played every game for the last eight weeks. It's just that we didn't mount a comeback. And like you said, it's the Rams. And there's that's about all we could do against the Rams ever, always. Yeah. I think it was one reason, and his name was John Walford. I feel like, uh, you know, it was like the Gipper, it was like Brian's song, it was like Rudy, when that guy went out and he was like shaking his head because, you know, he, and, and you know, he clearly looked like he was about five foot two, um, then, then, then the, the switch turned and Jared Goff turned into like Peyton Manning in his last season and uh, it, lightning struck. Goff looked horrible, though. He played horrible. That's what I mean. He was like he Peyton Manning in his last season. He was awful. <laughs> he was like Blake Bortles when the Jaguars made that run. I, I told Todd before this podcast, I think the Rams are winning it all. By the way, backup quarterback now for the Rams, Blake Bortles. Perfect. Poetic. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having... An old favorite now, the alley-oop uh, Dunkel, in honor of my Jayhawks, who actually won a game yesterday. Amazing. Came down to last they shot. They won yesterday? They did. Who'd they beat? The Sooners. Oh, nice. nice. Get those conference wins before COVID cancels the Todd. season again. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? Uh, it's my favorite cocktail, Irish whiskey and ginger ale, which is the only way to drink ginger ale. It's, it's awesome. The only time I drink ginger ale is like on an airplane. Like it's like the one time I'm like, "What would you like to drink?" Every time I say ginger ale, I don't really know why, but I do. That's weird. Uh, so I've got um, from Ridgewalker. It's not a Ridgewalker beer, but uh, it's from Wild Ride Brewery in Redmond, Oregon. It is their Nut Crusher Peanut Butter Porter. So it's nice and rich and smooth, and I like it. It's good. So, okay, well, before we get into what we've been watching and all the stuff we're going to be talking about, we'll go through some movies we've watched. We have a featured review that we all watched of a awards contender that debuted this uh, this weekend on, on streaming. We have a deep dive of something celebrating a 25th anniversary this year, which should be a lot of fun. But first... We have another comment from our, our uh, sideways stalker. I think that's what we're going to call him. Uh, and his name is, uh, I think this is on YouTube that he's uh, given us these little tidbits here. His name is Wally Wally Gatorka. 
Wally Wally Gatorka. Anyways, he said he watched Sideways again, and he has some more news for us here. So, he said, watched it again. There's plenty of beer in the movie. Uh, yes, Zach, at AJ Spurs, uh, which obviously he's listening if he's calling Wait, he you called out. Me out? That he called me out? He called you out. He said, yeah, it's at AJ Spurs. Uh, Miles and Jack look to be having beer in mason jars with their dinner. At the dive bar, there are Budweiser signs, and in the foreground, as they're talking, those are beer taps. Uh, while getting stoned at Stephanie's, Jack is drinking a Corona. Uh, while Miles goes in to take to get Jack's wallet, there's a Heineken and another beer near his pants, and another beer on the dresser where his wallet is. Not a barely legal subscriber. <laughs> That's amazing. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. He really had to had to inform us on that. We're gonna have to go back and watch it now and and see where where all this stuff is. I mean, he listened to our podcast and literally just went back to watch Sideways to look for beer. I mean, how awesome is that? I admire that. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, well. With that in mind, make sure that you are subscribing, rating, reviewing, so that more people can be listening to us. Um, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can find us at almostsideways.com. Uh, our podcast is on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Pandora, on Spotify. Um, make sure you check us out. Uh, make sure you check out also Daily Notes. Uh, the latest Daily Notes just debuted right before we started recording. And it's kind of a cool one. Uh, I got to join Adam as we interviewed uh, Matt Neglia, the uh, host of the Next Best Picture podcast, who is kind of a big deal. He's uh, pretty uh, pretty influential in that uh, in that market. So check that out. It was a really good conversation. Uh, talked for about an hour with him. So with that, let's get into what we're doing. Uh, and we're going to start with uh, Todd. What was in the cager this week? Uh, so I went with the 2019 movie A Score to Settle, directed by Sean Koo, and where Nicolas Cage plays this guy named Frank, who is like a former mob enforcer who ends up having to do 19 years in prison while taking the fall for his boss who brutally murdered somebody with a bat. And so he gets released, and then he collects his massive cash reward that they left for him, and now then he joins his now grown son, and they sort of just like go live it up uh but all at, at the same time he's plotting his revenge on his boss and the other guys in the crime syndicate uh who forced him into his long stint in prison that he didn't know was going to be that long uh, a younger version of cage is played by bailey coppola who is uh an absolute dead ringer for his uncle like like wild at heart era cage it's kind of awesome he's christopher coppola's son who is the director of deadfall and nicholas cage's brother uh Cage has this, like, aura of a really hardened criminal, and but he also has some sort of charm. It's almost like Viggo Mortensen in A History of Violence or something like that. And uh, you get sort of sidetracked with the father-son stuff. It, it almost was like Matchstick Man was, like, put into this, like, revenge story where he, like, his, his son's teaching him about technology, and uh, he's sort of, like, worried about his son going down the wrong path, even though he hasn't seen him in forever. Uh, I kept kind of wondering where it was going, where it was going, because it, it was like Kill Bill at the start, and then it just sort of meandered around a while. But I mean, I had a lot of fun watching the movie. I don't know why all these Nick Cage movies have less than a five on IMDb. Like they probably didn't even watch them; they just like rate them low out of spite or something. But Cage is awesome to watch. He is uh, an absolute like mob muscle, but just not not a young man. I don't. It's um, 
Yeah, he's intimidating, and uh, he also finds another hooker with a heart of gold, because that is, like, a classic cage thing to do. Uh, there's a bunch of twists that kind of change the tone and meaning of the movie, and I, I think it's a fun movie. It's not necessarily a good movie. I'm giving it two and a half stars, which puts it number 51 between National Treasure and Riding with the Devil. Or Running with the Devil. A score to settle. I feel like Riding with the Devil will be the sequel to Running with the Devil. Yeah, that, that is that is true. <laughs> so according to right. IMDb, he learned to play piano for this movie. How would you grade his piano playing skills? Uh, well, brief, but uh, he, he he looked like he knew what he was doing. I, I didn't I didn't read that. <laughs> How'd you rate them? Brief. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Zach. What did you watch? All right. So this week I went up the uh, the, uh, the uh, what what do you call it? The deep end for uh, canopy. I don't know. I'm I'm getting the my metaphors confused. Um, and uh, I watched a movie with like no votes on IMDb. Actually, it has 179 votes, but it looked intriguing. It's called South Mountain. And is directed by Hilary Brower, and it stars Talia Balsam, who you may know from Mad Men. She plays John Slattery's wife in Mad Men, and I believe she's married to him in real life, although maybe I have that wrong. She's also in real life the daughter of the actor Martin Balsam. And the movie is, um, it basically tells the story of this family that's uh, under, um, they're sort of a strange family. They, they live kind of in the uh, woods in like upper New York, and as the movie opens, the the, the main character, the Talia Balsam character, is going through a divorce with her husband, um, Edgar, played by Scott Cohen. Her name is Lila. And we discover that uh, her husband is not only cheating on her, but he's also impregnated his mistress, who's delivering the baby. So there's sort of this kind of soap opera melodramatic plot that's kind of, um, you know, enabling um, inertia in the movie, something to actually happen. But really, the movie has this very kind of slow feel. It feels a lot more like a French or Japanese movie in the sense that there's not a whole lot of dialogue. It's much more like um, melancholic and kind of thoughtful and pensive about this woman who's going through significant life changes. Um, her daughter has graduated, I think, from college. It's kind of unclear, but she's like on a on some some boat somewhere and her other daughters kind of acting out in school a little bit um, this seems like the kind of movie that Julianne Moore uh, would make, but I think that um, uh, Talia Balsam is really good in it. Um, it's a movie that doesn't have a lot of substance to it. It's much more about the kind of mood and atmosphere of this kind of hippie dwelling that they live on, um, on the outskirts of civilization. I like it. Solid three stars. I've been thinking about it since I saw it on Monday. The other thing I would mention, though, is I did also watch the third episode of Small Axe, Red, White, and Blue, and I wanted to watch that to settle a score between Todd and Terry. Terry loved it. Todd was not a big fan of it. And what a shocker, I'm somewhere right in the middle. It is not as good as the first two episodes. I agree with what Todd's criticism was, which is that it's basically um, uh, Black Klansman without a good ending. And um, But John Boyega is great in it. I think this could have made a really good feature-length film. I think John Boyega would have had some Oscar attention because he's awesome in it. There's some really good scenes in it, but it doesn't quite have the same sort of magic pull as those first two. Maybe it's because it's not about the community as much. Maybe there's not as much music in it, but it wasn't quite the same experience. Still a solid movie, though. See, I thought it did so many things better than what Black Klansman did. And I actually kind of love the open, the open-ended ending and how it doesn't really resolve anything. I thought that, I thought that really worked well, but 
it just felt a little more conventional than the other two. So maybe it's not fair to grade it with that kind of context, but um, I don't know. It's still still worth checking out, though. I would have loved to see another half hour of it. And Agreed. Make it, make it a full thing well see yeah. when that when that one ended like i was like oh did my internet just cut out again and i was like oh wait no the thing is over wait that was the last scene i got i, I don't know <laughs> i i didn't think that was effective and and the movie basically is just a procedural cop thing which is fine but i don't think it's special all right all right i agree so with yeah well there you go there we go todd did you get to watch any more small acts uh, yeah, I watched the last two, and I don't know, and I, I, I'm continuing to be the opposite of you in those. I, I thought Alex Weedle was the second best one. I, I really got into that story, and I, lo- I love that character, and then, uh, yeah, Education I thought was fine. It was, I don't know, I'm, I, I don't, I think it was a little boring, and it, uh, but I could see why you would like it, especially being a teacher. Yeah, see, I thought Education was the best part, and... Alex Weedle was the worst. So, Zach, you've got some scores to settle again. <laughs> I'll work on it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, my anniversary watch, I am now on to my new list for the new year. So now I'm looking at, um, at movies this year that were nominated for Oscars in 2011, 2001, and 1991 that I hadn't seen yet. I'm not going to get all the way through the 1991 year, but I'm going to get a good chunk of it done. Um, and I like last year's list. I've now seen every movie that was nominated for an Oscar in 2010 and every movie that was nominated for an Oscar in 2000. So anyways, first one on my list, here, here's the quiz for you guys. So this is going back 30 years to 1991. It was nominated for two acting Oscars and that's it. Rambling Rose. 1991. 91. Rambling Rose is not the one I watched. It might qualify for it, but I, it's not the one I watched. Uh, Cape Fear? Lead actor and supporting actor. Cape Fear. Cape Fear is there the answer, go. yeah. I'd never seen Cape Fear. It was one of my, uh, my Scorsese uh, blind spots. So, uh, yeah, I watched Cape Fear and a uh, crazy story about um, a uh, prisoner who's just gotten out and uh, he is stalking and kind of hunting in some ways the uh, public prosecutor that was in charge of his case that he felt didn't do a very good job defending him uh, in the in the trial. So um, the the uh, criminal is played by Robert De Niro in one of his most unhinged performances. I don't think you uh, this is like a side of De Niro you never see. Um, and then uh, the the uh, lawyers played by uh, Nick Nolte, who was kind of like the it guy for the early 90s, and this fit everything else that he did at the time. Uh, the uh, supporting actress nomination went to Juliette Lewis for playing Nick Nolte's daughter, and she's really good in it. Um, but th- this movie's all about De Niro and, and Nolte's just reactions to De Niro. Um, it's a crazy story. I love Scorsese's direction of it and making it feel old school. Like he does a lot of camera tricks and the score even is, is built to make it feel like it's a film from like the sixties or seventies, uh, which, I mean, this is a remake of a sixties movie, uh, that was starring Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum, who also have cameos in the movie. 
I I loved it. I, I it was intense. It was crazy. Just seeing what De Niro was gonna do next as Max Cady was just fun. Um, and uh, and yeah, the rest of the cast: Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, Juliette Lewis. You got Joe Don Baker in there. Uh, it's so cool. I mean, it's it's great. Uh, great movie. Three and a half stars. Uh, a lot of fun to watch. Really intense. And yeah, if you want to see Robert De Niro as you've never seen him before, check out Cape Fear. Yeah, he's nuts in that movie. <laughs> I, I I love Cape Fear. I'm a big fan of it too. You could make a case that that's De Niro's best performance. I, I there's there's definite evidence because the physical transformation that he goes through, he like he literally turn he it's almost like Blade Runner or something at the end of the movie. It's like he turns into a robot or something. I mean, it's it's like almost surreal. <laughs> It, it is by far his most outside-the-box performance of his career. Like, nothing even comes close to anything he did in this. Like the fan or something. I don't But, I mean, but even then he's, like, buttoned-up straight guy with just this crazed fanaticism. I mean, nothing he's ever done has been quite like Cape Fear. So, anyways, yeah, three and a half stars. Totally worth the watch. If you've not seen it, check it out. Uh, it is on, oh, it was on Netflix, but it's not anymore. Where did I catch it? Now I can't remember. I think it was on Peacock. Now I think about it. I think I got it on Peacock. So, um, it's out there. You can check it out. Okay. Now, to talk about a Netflix movie, it's time for a featured review. And this movie, it is 2021. It just was released on, on Netflix. However, it is officially a 2020 movie because it got a limited theatrical release on December 30th. And I think we're going to have a few movies we're going to be covering over the next few weeks that have that are going to be like that. But this is Pieces of a Woman. And Zach, we're going to go to you first on Pieces of a Woman. Tell us uh, what it's about and what you thought. All right, so Pieces of a Woman is the, the new film by the Hungarian director Cornel Mundruzko and I, his writing partner Kata Weber. And it's loosely based, I believe, on, on the filmmaker's own experiences. Um, and it stars Vanessa Kirby, who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz, um, as, what's her name, Martha. And she, as we open the movie, she is, um, I don't know if they're married, but she is with um, Shia LaBeouf's character, Sean. They live in Boston. She is very pregnant. And the opening 30 minutes of the movie are her, uh, let's see, going through labor. And uh, it's a pretty riveting sequence that is worthy of, like, Alejandro Gonzalez. If Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu had directed uh, a childbirth sequence, this would be it. It's shot in one take. Um, maybe Emmanuel Luzbeski was the cinematographer. I don't know. Um, but uh, definitely a, a pretty amazing way to open the movie. Um I've never been through childbirth. Maybe we'll ask Terry his thoughts about the accuracy of that scene since he's been through it a couple times. Um, they have a midwife over, um, but unfortunately, uh, tragedy happens without getting into too much detail. And so the movie kind of chronicles, after the first 30 minutes, it kind of chronicles the aftermath of what uh, tragedy sort of ensues and involves the midwife. Um, although it's not really so much about the midwife. Um, it's more about the, the Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf characters as their marriage sort of dissolves and um, both of them to some degree 
stories are addicts, um, particularly the Shia LaBeouf character, um, and their lives sort of fall apart. Uh, there's also a side character, um, Elizabeth, played by Ellen Burstyn, who is Vanessa Kirby's mother, who never really fully approved of um, the uh, the Shia LaBeouf character. And then there's a great side character played by, um, who should, you know, uh, uh, not the homeless rabbi, but um, great director Benny Safdie in a rare acting role um, as uh, one of the in-laws, and he's married to Eliza Slushinger. Um, okay, so, you know what, I will say this movie is a little over two hours long. I never found it boring. It was a fascinating movie to watch, and I can't quite give it thumbs up, even though the opening sequence was um, pretty remarkable. Um, and there's a few reasons why. Um, first of all, I really didn't like all the side characters. Uh, the movie's called Pieces of a Woman. It kind of does the same. It has sort of the same problem as Matt Mob Rainey's Black Bottom. It has the titular character in the title, but it doesn't really focus enough on the character. Um, I think Vanessa Kirby's really good in this movie, but um, she's not. It, it's not a role that has a lot of dialogue. Um, it's a role that's much more about the sort of physical motions that she goes through and there are scenes that I wanted more context in like for example she comes back to work in one scene that is a fascinating detail of her life that is really underdeveloped um, in this movie she has some exchanges with Ellen Burstyn that I think are pretty interesting but don't have a lot of context the problem with this movie is Shia LaBeouf uh, he uh, takes all the t attention away from the movie. His role is over the top. I don't know if it's the fault of Shia LaBeouf or the way the role was written, but it's like every scene he was in, he took away the authenticity from and the, the emotional uh, resonance of, of the story with this kind of labored over the top performance. I also just have to say, and I know Todd's going to particularly kill me on this one, but it is hard to watch this movie with all the shit that's been going down with Shia LaBeouf in real life. Because in this movie, he's also like an emotionally abusive alcoholic dick like he is in real life. Um, so maybe this movie suffers as a result of bad timing. I also didn't particularly buy the whole trial of the midwife. Um, that seemed like kind of lazy writing. It was sort of an obvious conclusion that the character was supposed to... We always knew what was going to happen with that character at the end of the movie. So the courtroom speech at the end is sort of, um, uh, you know, not, not that compelling. This is a two and a half star movie. I do actually like the end scene um, because it's kind of curious and weird and, and, and uh, makes you kind of ponder what, what, what the deeper meaning of it is. Vanessa Kirby's good. Maybe she's worthy of an Oscar nomination, but um, overall this movie kind of needed a little bit more focus in the screenwriting and, and more of a focus specifically on the woman in Pieces of a Woman. All right. All right. Well, Todd, he, he kind of called you out a little bit, but yeah. I'm going to go to you next anyways. Um, what, uh, what did you think of this? Well, I, I agree about the the three minute scene. I thought was really comprehensive and painful. It, it, it had like the emotional rawness of four months, three weeks, and two days. I thought it was a, like a harrowing thirty minute sequence, and it was amazing. But I think Shia LaBeouf is magnetic. I think that the, Ben Foster is the only other actor that could have played that role with that level of volatility and intensity and likability. And if they hadn't tried to cancel him, then he would be getting a Best Actor nomination for sure. He would be an absolute shoo in. Vanessa Kirby, I think, is going to win Best Actress, but we're not really going to know that for, like, two months because there's always the frontrunner and, and it's the veteran, and then Michael Keaton or Julie Christie or whoever is completely steamrolled by the, by the younger, more dynamic performance. It happens all the time, and she ruined me in this movie. She is amazing. Um, I think Ellen Burson's also probably going to get nominated. Maybe she probably is going to win. She's, like, 30 years too old for that role. I'm not really sure why she's playing the mother, and then she's, like, 90 years old. Uh, but... It's a difficult role, and she only has a few scenes, but she she really she still she still has it. Uh, 
And I, I think the, the relationship stuff is easy to draw comparisons to Marriage Story, but it really is inspired by more of the Cassavetes movies, like Woman Under the Influence. I think the, the chemistry between LaBeouf and Kirby is real, and it's I think it is authentic, and the performances really just pop off the screen, so Zach is completely wrong about that. Uh, but though, if there's a problem with the movie, then it's the music, because it's, like, way too prevalent. Like, the scenes that needed, like, reflection and silence just really have this, like, booming score over them that makes it seem like it's a pivotal scene building towards something <coughs> in a different genre. So that, that takes away a little bit from, like, the really wrenching scenes. That takes it down from four stars to three and a half stars. I think it's maybe Netflix's, maybe, like, a top three Netflix movie of all time. It never feels or looks like TV. Three and a half stars. All right. Well, I definitely did this in the right order because we've got two and a half from Zach, we've got three and a half from Todd, and I'm giving it three. Um, and I agree with parts of, of each of you. First, I'll say, uh, to agree with Todd, I think all the performances are really are really well done. Vanessa Kirby's awesome. I, I think Shia LaBeouf is very good in this, and I feel like it kind of fits him. It's a good role for him. Um Ellen Burstyn, like you said, she's probably going to get a nomination. I feel like she's going to get a nomination simply because it's like, hey, Ellen Burstyn's acting again. Good for you. Here's a nomination. But I don't know if she necessarily earns it. I mean, she's good, but she doesn't really do anything special with it. Uh, Vanessa Kirby is special, though, in this role. Um, in terms of the opening, I will say it is pretty accurate how it portrays the, uh, the labor uh, it kind of streamlines everything a little bit to get it all in, in that in the time frame it has. But uh, it, it's it's a pretty accurate scene. Uh, I, not gonna lie, it it definitely uh, shows it for a lot of what it what that experience actually is. And the the main problem I have with it that's not gonna put it higher is this movie peaks at a half hour in. Uh, that scene is one of the best scenes of the year. And then everything after that, I mean, it it's good. And the performances are great, but it just kind of is meandering. And then the ending, the whole courtroom scene is just a distraction from what the movie is actually about. And it's it feels like it's all a contrivance just to get the just to get Martha to have her moment where she kind of reconciles everything. But um it it, it felt completely out of place and every time they would bring up the fact that there is this trial that's about to happen because of all of this it just didn't feel right and it felt like it was distracting from what really was supposed to be happening in the movie um so that's why i'm giving it three stars i think it it meanders at the end and doesn't quite work but uh the beginning is as good as any filmmaking this year and vanessa kirby i don't think she's gonna win i think she's gonna be nominated uh, this feels like that. It feels like that perfect nomination for uh, th this type of performance doesn't win. I feel like um, it, it's going to get the nomination, and um, which is going to declare Vanessa Kirby as someone to be reckoned with for the next decade. Uh, she could win in the next decade, but um, this will kind of announce her presence on the scene. But I don't think I I, I don't see this performance win. I'm just saying. I, I said it here january 10th she's going to win but we're not going to know that until the televised awards things start happening and then we'll be like oh yeah she is the front runner okay yeah well we're not going to know much of anything until we start seeing some stuff on tv for sure so 
I want to go back to Todd for a second because I think there's one thing that he said that was great and one thing that I think he's totally off on. The, I'll start with the thing that he's off on, which is this totally looked like a Netflix movie, okay? This did not look at all... It's, it looked like every Netflix movie I've ever seen. It's obviously shot digitally. Obviously, it, 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 it didn't feel it at all very TV. cinematic. I Listen, it, <laughs> it was one of the things I didn't like about it. It looked way too glossy, that kind of underlit uh, back tone. I just did, it, it didn't look movie-like at all. However, I do like your comparison to uh, John Cassavetes. It, it did feel like the director was trying to invoke um, some Cassavetes in it. And, um, you know, particularly like the, the family sort of intervention scene felt very Cassavetes-esque. And I would agree that I think Vanessa Kirby is great in this movie. I just don't know why all the other people had to be there. I felt like the speech at the end, just like Terry said, what for, I mean, why is this trial even happening? It just felt like a device used um, by the screenwriters. This should have been a 30-minute movie. And if the directors really had wanted to make a feature-length movie, they should have looked to Jim Cummings and Thunder Road as an example of how a movie may peak in the first 20 minutes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad rest of the movie. Well, see, I don't, I don't think, I mean, it, it was the best scene in the movie, but I don't think that it really was, like, a drop-off from there, necessarily. I, I thought, I love the scene at, at, like, the house that was just sort of, like, that was, like, uh, it had Safdie and, and LaBeouf just, like, talking in the background as other things were going on. It was, like, following her around. I thought that was a really well-done scene, too. Like, it was a collection of great scenes, I thought, and... I guess I, I think the only problem is the music ma- made it seem like it was trying to be a different movie. I, I, I'll agree with Zach that I, this movie shouldn't have been any more than an hour 45. Definitely not over two hours. It, 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 it kind of, it went too long. And again, that's because it had to add in the, the crazy ending that didn't fit with the tone of the rest of the movie. However, I will say one thing I liked about the courtroom scene is the, the, the clerk, the bailiff in the courtroom, uh, his accent is the only uh, thing that told you that this was set in Boston. Okay, I had an interesting <laughs> thought about it. I was hoping one of you would bring him up. I felt like he was Alec Baldwin doing a Boston accent. <laughs> you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I mean, this is kind of what it felt like. <laughs> he, he just, yeah, that was more Kennedy than, than Old Town Boston. I also thought it was kind of weird that he's just like, yeah, I'm going to road trip to Seattle. And I'm like, aren't they in Massachusetts? That's a really weird thing to do. <laughs> as far away as you could possibly get. That's what he wanted to do. Uh, I also still right. don't really oh, know how oh, he, he knew the lawyer character. Was that ever really established? Like, that, again, too many fuzzy details. Like, I, I, I feel like that was there was more of an emotional payoff that the filmmakers were trying to get. But, like... It just kind of fell flat for me. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got we've got two and a half from Zach, three from me, oh, three and a half from Todd. Sorry, one more thing. Oh, I, I hate whenever a lawyer in a movie says, this is an open and shut case, because that doesn't happen in real life. And that lawyer says it multiple times in this movie. It's pretty annoying. I'm sorry. That was my last comment. So you've been a lawyer. You just haven't had kids. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I've been dealing with lawyers a lot lately, so, um, you know, it's, uh, no one says that. That's a movie thing. Anyways, check this movie out on Netflix. Uh, it's one of the more popular movies of this weekend, for sure. Uh, and I think we are definitely going to be talking about this uh, all through award season, as I think 
definitely at least Vanessa Kirby and Ellen Burstyn are going to be wrapped up into the whole award season. Uh, so uh, check that out. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think about it. See which one you of us you agree with. Near Masterpiece, good, somewhat disappointing. I mean, we're, we're kind of all across the spectrum there. So, uh, so check it out for sure. All right, moving on. It is now time for our deep dive. And it's our first 2021 deep dive. And we're starting to look at, at films that are celebrating anniversaries this year. And so that takes our 25th anniversary year to 1996. And that means we are celebrating the anniversary of Fargo today. Now, the funny thing is, and this is one of the things that um, I, I think that is making this one special, is that Fargo has kind of been regarded as like this masterpiece in on our in our podcast since what like episode two when we invoked the rule that Fargo is not allowed to be used in any power rankings simply because if it is it's gonna be number one in almost everything. I remember there was a time that we were like, okay, but we're, let's just try and find as many categories as we can that Fargo should qualify for but can't like we did movies in the snow we did movies with the city as the title is how many different started ways with dark can comedies we make... i think oh dark comedies that's what it started with yeah how many different ways can we make sure that we can't put fargo number one because we can't choose fargo ever again so this is a classic we all love this movie it is one of the only unanimous number ones of a year on, on our website i think if I remember right, I think it's this and Goodfellas, which is kind of funny because we've done both of them in like the last month and a half. Um, but yeah, so we're talking Fargo. Um, so if you haven't seen Fargo or if it's been a while, make sure you check it out. Watch it before you listen to the rest of this because we're going to be like hardcore going into detail about a lot of crazy stuff. Obviously, after hearing what um, what our sideways stalker has been talking about with uh, with all the sideways details he's been finding. This is the stuff we talk about on our deep dive. So watch the movie, appreciate it for what it is, and then come back and listen to us go into crazy detail that nobody else really cares about other than us about Fargo. Okay, starting with our trivia. And I'm hosting trivia this time. And we are, let's see here, who are we going to start with? I think we're going to start with Todd. So, uh, so Zach, unplug, and then uh, and we'll uh, let you know when it's time to get back in here. All right. Ready, Todd? Yeah. We have 12 questions worth a total of 21 points. Okay. All right, question number one. Fargo is based on a true story that happened in what year? 1987. That is correct. Uh, next question. Jerry meets Carl and Gayar at what bar? It's the King of Clubs. That is correct. Um, when we first meet Wade, what is he watching? Oh. <laughs> I... I can't picture it. Is it, is it like a... Is it like an infomercial or something? No, no. What, what you got on there, Wade? Gophers! Oh. And he's watching Gophers hockey. Minnesota Gophers hockey. That's right. Uh, next one. How much is it going to cost for Jerry's parking lot deal? 
How much is it gonna? How much? How much does he want for? Uh, seven hundred fifty thousand. That is correct. Okay. Uh, what is the name of Marge's partner? Lou. Lou. Uh, what instrument does Scotty Lundegaard play? I don't know the violin. No, the one. So the one scene where Jerry goes and talks to him, and he's all upset, sitting on his bed. There is an accordion sitting next to him on. His oh, bed. okay, that's right. I've never seen that. Uh, what is Marge's maiden name? <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, Margie Olmstead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where does Marge meet Mike? What, it was at, at the Radisson? At the Radisson, yep, that's correct. This one's worth two points. Uh, how much were the kidnappers told the ransom was? And for the second point, how much was the father-in-law told the ransom was? Uh, 80000 That is correct. And I think it was a million. It's a million, yep. Next one, what line does Marge say before she asks the question, don't you know that? What's it like, it's not, I mean, something about, like, it's not worth it just for a little bit of money or something? I'll give you half a point. There's more to life than a little bit of money. Oh, okay. Uh, next one is worth two points. A painting of Norm's was picked for a stamp. What was the painting and which stamp? I, I don't remember. Oh, I thought this was going to be an easier question. All right, it, it's a mallard, and it was the three cent. Okay. And last question. This one is worth eight points. Oh, boy. Um, Frances McDormand won Best Actress for playing Marge Gunderson. What four performances did she beat? One point for the actress, one point for the movie. Uh, so we have... Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas in The English Patient. That is correct and correct. Uh, Brenda Blevin for Secrets and Lies. Correct and correct. Uh, Meryl, no, Diane Keaton for Marvin's Room. Correct and correct. One more. Uh, Emily Watson for Breaking the Waves. Wow, you ran that. Correct and correct. Good job. All right. That probably gave me a chance. <laughs> that that did. I I wow. Okay. Zach is back with us. Zach, can you hear us? Yes, I'm here. Okay. All right. So, there are 12 questions worth a total of 21 points and Todd got 15 and a half. All right. So, you got your work cut out for you here. All right. First question, Fargo is based on a true story that happened in what year? 1987. Correct. Jerry meets Carl and Geyer at what bar? The King of Clubs. Correct. A lot of theories about that bar, by the way. Uh, when we first meet Wade, what is he watching? Golfers. Hockey. Golfers. Correct. Uh, how much is it going to cost for Jerry's parking lot deal? Uh, $750,000. That is correct. Uh, what is the name of Marge's partner? Lou. Correct. Uh, what instrument does Scotty Lundegaard play? Accordion. 
Like his hero, the Accordion King. Correct. Uh, what is Marge's maiden name? Olmstead. Correct. Uh, let's see here. Where was I at? Oh, where does Marge meet Mike? At the Radisson. Correct. Uh, this one's worth two points. How much were the kidnappers told the ransom was? And for the second point, how much was the father-in-law told the ransom was? Uh, $80,000 and $1 million. Correct and correct. Uh, what sentence does Marge say before she asks the question, don't you know that? There's more to life than... Um, does that have to be the exact sentence? It's like, there, there's more to life than a little bit of money. That is the exact sentence, correct. Uh, next question is worth two points. A painting of Norm's was picked for a stamp. What was the painting and which stamp? It was a three-cent stamp. Oh, I really wanted to run this. I don't remember what... The, was it the goose? Ah, oh, the mallard. The mallard. God, so close. That that was an impressive run. So last question now. Um, and, and we'll see how you do here. Todd ran this last question. It's worth eight points. Holy crap. Um, and and, and it, it, it's honestly, it's a question more geared towards Todd. So we'll see how you do. Frances McDormand won Best Actress for playing Marge Gunderson. What four performances did she beat? A point for the actress, a point for the movie. Okay, well, Blenda Blethin for Secrets and Lies. Correct and correct. Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient. Correct and correct. Diane Keaton for Marvin's Room. Correct and correct. Joan Allen. Is that right? No, that is Damn not it. right. What was the other one? Uh, Emily Watson, Breaking, Breaking the, the Waves. Ah, should have got that. But, yeah, I mean, you only missed three points. You missed the Mallard and you missed that. What so, were you thinking Joan Allen with, from? Like the Crucible or something? She, she was not. She was like nominated every year in the 90s, wasn't she? <laughs> it's like the default twice. answer. <laughs> no, she's nominated like four times. Contender, yeah, Portrait of a Lady. No, wait, no, that wasn't her. No. Never mind. You're probably right, she was, Contender was 2000 anyway. She was nominated for Nixon. I think that was the only one, maybe. <laughs> well, with a score of 18 to 15 and a half, Zach wins. Uh, you guys did a lot. I, all right, so I'm always criticized for how I how I what kind of trivia questions I come up with, and I didn't quite know how how much to go like dig into this movie. So, I mean, I I, I thought it ended up being easier than I thought it was going to be. So, I, I guess that I mean, just means you guys know a lot about this movie. I mean, well, Zach knows it way more than I do, obviously. <laughs> I mean, apparently, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a good well, set thought, of questions. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't thought, have been anywhere near if I didn't have that last question. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, that, that definitely helped you out. Well, Todd, you're the one that picked this movie for us to do, so why don't you start out and tell us your experience with Fargo? Uh, I can't even remember the last time I, or the first time I watched it. It probably was on cable and like, E or something, when, in, like, maybe the early, mid-2000s. But I, I've always, I've always really liked the movie, uh, even, like, commercially interrupted, edited version. Uh, I, I, I think, I think it's, uh, it's got to be the Coen Brothers' best movie, and I, I don't know why necessarily, other than that, it just seems the most complete movie. It seems like the most focused, and it doesn't overstay its welcome in any one scene. I, it's got a million awesome minor characters, and it's I, it's it's kind of a masterpiece of uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways, whether that's Roger Deakins' cinematography, or the score, or the editing. Everything about it is just 
is just amazing. And yeah, Fargo, there's a reason why we have we uh, have it has such a highly regarded movie on our website. And not not just us. I mean, it's number 177 on the IMDb Top 250. I was nominated for a bunch of Oscars that year. Um, Zach, what's your experience with this? So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, Terry. I've seen this movie. Oh, it's probably a top five. I've seen this movie like the most times. So <laughs> I'm actually really pissed off. I didn't get the mallard because now I remember that very clearly. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is a top 10 movie for me, although I think I've said that about more than 10 movies. So this is a, a serious top 10 movie for me. Um, I remember when Siskel and Ebert reviewed it, you know, uh, on, on their YouTube clip, they still have like the, the, their initial review of it. And, you know, it came out in like March of 96, like it came out super early and Gene was like, you know what, Roger, this is the best movie. I'm going to tell you right now, this is the best movie of the year. I mean, they sounded so criticky and, uh, both of them named it their best movie of 1996. Um, you know, it was like, they both knew right away that it was the best movie of the year. Um, I didn't see it when I was nine years old, but I wanted to. I remember watching the 96 Oscars and rooting for it, even though I'd never seen it. Um, and uh, I don't know when I saw it either, but uh, it's been a, a, a part of my life for a long time. I have not watched the TV show, probably for the same reason that I have not read the novel Sideways. I just, I mean, I could, I don't know, maybe I'm just being lazy, but I feel like the movie is so perfect. Why Why add any more than what it already is? Um, it's a great movie. It holds up really well, and it's the Coen Brothers' best movie, which is saying something. Well, the TV I think show... you're the only one that's watched the TV show. Yeah. Well, uh, the first season is sort of a retelling uh, of Fargo, but after that, it just like expands the world, and like n- it's not necessarily connected to the I- any of the characters or anything like that. They're just un- uh, stories with that tone and that style. Uh, which I mean, which is better than just having to be like a, a spinoff or something, because it really is not that. Now, Todd, I think you might be the only one on the podcast also that's seen Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. Uh, is that a good companion piece to go along with this? Uh yeah, it yeah it, it obviously has definite parallels, and uh, it's obviously part of the movie. But yeah, I don't know. I I've I've seen that once. I I would have to rewatch it. But uh, I, I think it's like more of a curiosity than uh, than greatness. But and, and for those that don't know, it, 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 is it based on a true story? I, I believe so. Yes. Of someone who came across a VHS copy of Fargo and thought it was a true story, and went hunting for the briefcase full of money, um, and thought that, that that the movie was like a treasure map to to find it. So. Um, I almost like I watched this on Friday night to get ready for the deep dive, and I almost like immediately started Kumiko just to, just because I'm like this. I feel like this needs to be watched. <laughs> Rinko Kakuchi. Have you, yeah, have you seen that one, Zach? I feel like I started to watch it at some point, but I was I don't believe I was overly impressed by it, and I kind I think I gave up midway through. Um. Anyway, so for me, I've, I haven't talked about uh, it yet, so I, I'm with you guys. I honestly don't remember the first time I watched it. Um, I probably haven't seen this as much as I should have. Like, there, there's a lot of details here that I didn't necessarily realize that I didn't know. Um, but I think you could say that if you want to give someone... It, I think it's pretty safe to say that over the last 25, 30 years, the Coens are some of the greatest and at least most unique filmmakers 
that we have working in Hollywood. And if you want to give someone a movie that is going to tell tell you everything about what the Coens are about, Fargo is the movie to do it. Uh, it's a great story. It's got some darkness to it, but it is also just quirky. And it's not like going for laughs. It's just quirky because of how real it is and how some of these characters just play into the realism of it. And I mean, this what makes this movie so so quirky really is the setting and where it is and what kind of personalities you get from that upper Midwest uh, lifestyle. And that's what gives this movie its quirkiness. And that's that defines the Coens as they figure out where they're at and then uh, unveil the quirkiness of that area. And uh, I think this is, if it's not their best, it is definitely their most, their, the like the trademark Coen Brothers movie. Well, yeah, and that's also because there's so many, like you said, Terry, I mean, there's so many, like, um, overlapping themes and character types that they have in other movies. I mean, The Big Lebowski, which was their follow-up to this movie, also involves the kidnapping plot of a rich guy's wife, right? And um, it's very hard to watch for, uh, you know, No Country for Old Men and not feel like there's parallels between the Gayer Grumsred character and um, the Javier Bardem character. And... Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could trace that through their whole filmography, but um, I feel like this is sort of like the culmination of their work because of just how economical it is. There's, I mean, it's like, like it's, it's a short movie. It's like 95 minutes long. There's nothing excessive about the movie. Um, and the dialogue is just perfect. Um, and, you know, it gets it gets pegged as this movie that's about, you know, an overly broad, generalized cultural stereotype. But um, the truth is, though, I can't think of another movie that's really set in this part of the country. And um, I don't know, it, it's it feels really accurate to me based on the few times I've been there. Nominated for seven Oscars, one, two for Best Actress and Best Original Screenplay. Also nominated for Best Picture. Best Supporting Actor, William H. Macy. Best Director. Best Cinematography. I don't know how it didn't win. Um, the English Patient won, but there's no way English Patient should have beaten Fargo for cinematography here. And, uh, and Editing, which is also another great strength of this movie. Most of those were the Coens, by the way, other than Roger Deakins. <laughs> what won Best Editing? Was that English Patient too? Uh, oh, I'm probably... Let me look it up here. Yeah, it was not uh, Roderick Janes or whatever. Uh, yeah, yes, it, yeah. it was Rod- Roderick Janes. Yeah, it was English patient. So, um, you know, Avita, Fargo, Jerry Maguire, and Shine. That's a so weird I, list. I mean, look, um, William H Macy was robbed of an Oscar for this movie, but it's almost forgivable because Cuba Gooding Jr. gave a top five acceptance speech of all time at the Oscars, which is iconic. So, like, it almost balances it out, but. I'm sorry, Cuba. There's no way that William H. Macy shouldn't have won Best Supporting Actor. Well, he should have been nominated for Best Actor, I think. And uh, I mean, that's and fair. He, but, but the Best Actor winner was also kind of a category fraud <laughs> winner too. So I don't know. It was uh, they had their yeah, own Macy, back then. Macy probably had more screen time than uh, than Jeffrey Rush. Yeah, certainly well, I, in terms of per- Noah Taylor percentage. was definitely more lead and shine than Jeffrey Rush is. I, which is yeah, I don't know. They always screwed that up. <laughs> I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be really interesting. The hardest category that we normally do on these deep dives this this time around was highest war, because there are so many characters that feel irreplaceable in this movie, um, and and uh, William H Macy is definitely one of those. 
So anyways, let's get into some of the other stuff before we get into those categories that we're going to talk about. Uh, we always try to come up with a Mount Rushmore that is somewhat related to the topic. And what I like about, uh, we threw out a couple different categories of stuff that we were thinking about. What I like about the one that we chose is it really ties together our the two movies we're focusing on here. Pieces of a Woman and Fargo. Because we're doing a Mount Rushmore of pregnant characters. I mean, again, you're not going to get this anywhere else. This is like the strangest list you could possibly come up with. But I, I love it. I love it. So, Mount Rushmore pregnant characters. First, can I just say that, um, can we agree that our consensus pick is Marge? Oh, sure. I, I, th I think that's pretty. Oh, oh sure, you betcha. Um, so, Marge is definitely on, on, the, uh, on the Mount Rushmore here. But what, what are going to be our other choices here? So, oh, let's see here. Let's go to, uh, let's go let's, to Zach. No, first. let's start with you, Terry. Let's start with me? Yes. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I, Is this just movies? I, I don't know. I think so. I was just thinking of it as just movies. And how pregnant do they have to be? Do they have to be like pregnant the whole movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Does it also have some, to be a woman? Well, see, that I, I, I was going to have to mention <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger in Jr. Just because that it's it's iconic. But, um, all right, if I'm going first with nothing else picked, like I had a bunch that I wanted to look at here, but I'm going to, I'll, I'll take Juno. Uh, I think, I think it's an amazing movie um, looking at high school pregnancy and and everything that that entails the and it's it's one of the only other movies or it, it's a movie where that's like the focal point and um and it's so well done uh the diablo cody's script uh it her style works so well with juno and i feel like her style hasn't necessarily worked with anything else she's done quite like it did with juno it, it like captured style and and substance in a perfect way and um and i yeah it thundercats are go uh juno is is a great movie and it's a great character and i gotta it's gotta be on the mount rushmore it's gotta be so that's my submission then okay now now let's go to zach okay um i'll just take i'll take the other low-hanging fruit which is the bride I mean, she's not pregnant for a great deal of the movie, but uh, Uma Thurman is Beatrix Kiddo. I mean, she's phenomenal, and um, yeah, there's not much else to it. I mean, when you think pregnant characters, you think Marge Gunderson, you think The Bride, you think Juno. So um, yeah, over to you, Todd. What's your pick? I had, I had even, I, I, I knew I was missing something, and I and oh, the you didn't, bride was you didn't it. remember I, The Bride? I okay. hadn't even thought about The Bride. Yeah, I didn't think about her because she's not pregnant very much. So, but I mean, that's but, but it choice. is a great, it's a great choice. Uh, okay, I mean, time. I could, I could go with the other easy one, or I could go with something a little bit darker. So, I think I'll do that. I'll go with Autumn and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Yes. When are we ever going to mention oh, that pick. movie on one of these lists? And uh, it's a great performance, one of the best movies of the year. And uh, I mean, you obviously aren't going to know she's pregnant unless you watch the movie because she's a, you know, very not pregnant very much. But yeah. Yeah, that, that, I guess that's who I would put on there. With the honorable mention being, of course, Allison Scott and Knocked Up. 
Right, yeah. right. That's the uh, that's the other low hanging fruit. For sure. Or or Padme Amidala in uh, Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> Padme Amidala, yeah. The other two that I had, um, I I was really really tempted, um, to pick uh, a real nostalgic pick from my childhood, and that's Kirstie Alley and Look Who's Talking. Um, I almost I almost just went with that one. It it it's got such iconic scenes that are just like, just like, stuck in my brain from my childhood. I mean, the race to the egg and and the the way it portrays the pregnancy it, it, or the delivery, not necessarily realistic, but it's so much fun. And then uh, the other one that's a little darker is uh, Children of Men. I mean, yeah. yeah, pregnant woman is the savior of the world. You, you got to go. With, you got to mention that one, too. So, yeah, Zach, yeah, do you have I, any others you were thinking of? I thought of Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby. I thought that might come up on one, one of your picks. Mm. Um also, um, Tully. Well, it's not Tully, but the Charlize Theron character in Tully. Um, Mary Hayes, proud, happy, and thrilled um, on kid number 19, I believe. Uh, we have Tilda Swinton in The War Zone, Tess Harper in The Man in the Moon, Brittany Mahomes, even though she's not a fake character, um, she's pregnant in real life. I just want to throw that out there. And uh, the soap opera lady in Fargo, because she's pregnant with Bruce Campbell's baby. That that yes. permits her to be on this list, considered. Good call. Good call. <laughs> All right. So so yeah. So our Mount Rushmore is is Marge Gunderson from Fargo, Juno from Juno, The Bride from Kill Bill, and Autumn from Never, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. That's a great list. That's a great list. All right. Well, now let's start. Let's get back into Fargo. And one of the things we always do is we always try to recast the movie. So this one was especially difficult. Recasting Fargo. Uh, so let's let's give it a shot. Starting with Marge Gunderson. Oscar winning role for Frances McDormand. Todd, you're first. What do you got? So I, I don't even know. Like It's obviously a really difficult movie to recast, especially this role, because I, I don't know that I would have ever expected Francis McDormand to be able to do that uh, like that. But it's got to be someone that handles like really dry comedy, but not necessarily comedy, like more real-life words and making it funny. A song with Katherine Hahn. I, it, I, I don't know that I could see her in like a, like a crime thriller, but I mean, I think she could definitely nail the tone of Marge. That's an interesting one. I, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like she's a little old at this point to be realistically pregnant, but... Well, Ellen Burstyn was playing a 20-year-old's mother. <laughs> <laughs> Different movie about a pregnant person, though, Todd. <laughs> All right, Zach, what did, what did you have for Marge? I had uh, three people down. I'll, I'll read the first two and then the, the one that I chose. I thought Aaliyah Shawkat, um, Natasha Leone. And then the person that I decided to go with was Lily Gladstone, um, because, um, I don't know, I, I think she also is capable of having some sort of comedy. If she bring, I think she would bring a um, maybe a more serious tone to the role. She's chronically, um, you know, under underappreciated. She was great in, in her one scene in First Cow, um, but uh, I'd, I'd be really excited to see a movie with Lily Gladstone front and center as Marge Gunderson. All right, so my pick, I don't necessarily love it, but I think it, it could go well, especially, I, I was thinking, like, who could nail, like, the upper Midwest, like, sensibilities of Marge? 
and uh, and just kind of feel like almost this like innocent, but still is this cop that's trying to do these things. I went with Ellie Kemper. Um, um I, yeah, I, I feel fun. like she. Yeah, I can yeah. See that. It'd be it'd be fun. I could see. I could. It, it'd be a little dark for her from what she's used to, but I could see it work. That's a that's a pretty good pick. I mean, that would be very much maintaining what the movie what what that role is trying to do. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going for. All right, Jerry Lundergaard, played by William H Macy, Todd. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if William H Macy had these roles nailed at the time, but I. I think I think Sam Rockwell is too old, but I could see him doing that at least at some point in his career. Uh, so I guess I I guess I'll say Bill Hader. Uh, mm. I don't know, like he's great at playing like loser types, and uh, I think he pro- he would absolutely dig his teeth into like that kind of accent and stuff. That's not bad. That's not bad. Zach, what about you? Yeah, I went more the Sam Rockwell route. Um, even though you're right, Todd, he's a little old. I went with Matt Damon. I mean, everyone just wants to punch Matt Damon, and uh, I mean, he's great. I think I think that is the, his best niche, certainly in the last ten years of playing complete douchebags. Um, so, I, I would dig it. So I, I didn't necessarily want to do like an office theme, but my my Jerry is Ed Helms. I feel like he's he's yeah, kind of got a good. similar vibe of. Of you can see how he's a very likable guy, but also could be a complete degenerate loser at the same time. Uh, so, uh, so that was my pick. I like it. Yeah, that works. I, I like okay. the idea of the office recast as Fargo. You should stick <laughs> with that theme, Terry. Should I stick with the? I didn't Kemper stick with in, it past that, but in in the office. Yeah. Yes, she well, is. Todd's only Dude, seen the first uh, season, so he is. He, yeah. So once uh once um, Ham goes on maternity leave the first time, Ellie Kemper becomes the new uh, the new secretary. Ah. But you have to watch and, the and show around the rest of the time to actually see it happen. Exactly, and she basically I haven't seen Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but from what I've heard, Aaron is basically Kimmy Schmidt. Yes, I can confirm that. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, next one we have Carl Showalter. Brought to us by Steve Buscemi. Todd, who do you have replacing Steve Buscemi? Uh, I went with another Steve, and his name is Steve-O. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, Carl is, is uh, he's kind of funny looking. And I don't know that anybody is more funny looking than Steve-O. And I think it'd be awesome to watch him, like, be a kidnapper, like, killer dude. Yeah, especially if he gets a directors like the Coens, like I, I think that would be like a, an amazing thing to watch. That would be that would be interesting for sure. <laughs> All right, Zach, what do you got? That's an amazing pick, Todd. I one hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> that I think that's better than my pick. Um, although I, my pick, this was my favorite of my picks, and that was um, Kieran Culkin. But I think I like Steve-O uh-huh. better. I like my pick better than both of yours. As I was thinking about who could play it, and I'm, and I'm thinking, all right, who could say this line? And who could say that line? And and the couple of lines I was thinking of is, like, the line where he, he like, shows the gun to Gayer. is like, are we clear? And, and then uh, also the lines in the car where he's, like, 
talking about how he's not going to talk for a while. And it's like, we'll see how you like it. And total silence. And Okay, once I got this name in my head, Jake Johnson. Jake Johnson has to be has to be Carl. <laughs> he's not that funny looking, though. Now, he's not that funny looking, but... I don't but know if whole, I can take him whole... seriously. Like, you have to, to, to some degree, you take Steve Buscemi seriously. Like, Jake Johnson. I mean, I... do you, though? Do you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I like that pick, though. I, I could totally see him. I, you're right. He doesn't necessarily get taken seriously that often, but I could see him working in this role really well. All right. All right. So now, Gayar Grimsrud, brought to us by the one and only John Abruzzi, John Abruzzi, Peter Stormare. Uh, Todd, who do you got? So, uh, the very first scene reminded me a lot of uh, a, a scene that's uh, similar in uh, Horrible Bosses. And I, for both characters, I really wanted to go with Jamie Foxx. So, I guess I'll put him here. I think it'd be awesome. Jamie Foxx and Steve-O. As a tandem. <laughs> I also think Jamie Foxx could play Carl. Like, I think his lines are basically Mother Jones's lines in, in Horrible Bosses, too. So, yes. Pretending like that he knows what he's doing? Yes. I like it. Zach, how about you? Yeah, I, I, I just thought, you know, intimidation, someone who you would be terrified if, you know, that you if they, like, saw you, you know, drive past the scene of an officer being killed and then they started to chase you down. And the most terrifying human being that I can think of, um, not an actor, but um, I think he could fit the role nicely, and that is Pittsburgh Steelers coach Mike Tomlin, because um, that guy's terrifying. And, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone wants to run into him. So the thing I thought of with uh, with this role is how is how he's like European. He's foreign, like like so he's like this foreign enforcer being brought in, and um, and Peter Stormare is Swedish. I went with someone who is Finnish. It is yes, uh, Jasper Pakkanen, um, who's been one of uh, Spike Lee's boys recently. In uh, oh, he's in the Five Bloods. Like, he was in Black Klansman. <laughs> Yes, not Jesper Parnovic. <laughs> Jesper Pakkanen. Uh He doesn't necessarily have the size to be intimidating, but he definitely has shown that he can be like off the rails insane. So, I was also thinking about Dominic Purcell, just because of how large and intimidating he is. <laughs> That's not bad either. That's not bad either. Okay, last one we're recasting is Norm Gunderson, brought to us by John Carroll Lynch. Who apparently was only like 32 years old when this was made. Like I was shocked at how young he was. He's already and bald. Still... Yeah, I know. <laughs> he has looked the exact same age for the last 25 years. Anyways, um, and I think that just means when he was 30, he looked like he was 50. And now that he's 50, he actually still looks like he's 50. Um, all right. Norm Gunderson. Todd, who do you got? Uh, well, I mean, mine's going to be more around the age of my Marge. Uh, I have two written down. Uh, I guess I'll go with uh, Kumail Nanjiani. It's a that that role of of Norm is interesting because he's he's just different. Uh, it's not there's nothing really special that he does, but it's hard to picture somebody else doing that. And I, I think Kumail would fit well in that world. That'd be interesting. An interesting take on on the different. It makes a base. Yeah. 
All right, Zach, what do you got? This was impossible for me to recast. I really couldn't really couldn't come up with anyone. I mean, originally I said John C. Riley, but he's way too old at this point. I mean, he's the only other actor in 1996 who could have played it, maybe. Um, I don't know, maybe like Paul Dano or something. Like someone who's good at, who could, who could be good at playing kind of clueless and goofy. Um, I don't know. It's it, low key. It's maybe the toughest role to recast. I think it might be re- tougher to recast than Marge. I actually thought about Paul Dano was Jerry. I thought yeah, that, that uh, yeah, I could see that. He can, he can, he can do a lot of stuff. He could, he could play Carl too. He is definitely funny looking. <laughs> so as you were, as we, uh, Zach, as you mentioned that I should just do all the office. The first thing that popped in my head was, oh well, then Norm has to be played by Kevin Malone. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> He could make his chili. But are you telling me that <laughs> Kevin and um, Ellie Kemper would be married? I I don't know yeah, if I can th- buy see, that. That's why I did. That's why I didn't go with it. So uh, what I what I take from Norm is he kind of is like he, he's kind of a schlub in a lot of ways. You, you kind of get this vibe that he's he's just kind of this. I don't know. He he's perfectly content living his life, painting his pictures of mallards, entering them into stamp contests. I went with Paul Walter Hauser. Um, That's a good one. Just, just kind of, the this just middle class schlub. So we have black um, clansmen re- meets meets the, the office. office with Jake Johnson. <laughs> with the exception of your Jake Johnson pick, Terry, I thought your recasting was excellent. Oh, that was you. one of your best recastings because Ellie Kemper is perfect for that. I thought so. Once I saw that name, I was like, yep, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, so I, I read something that had, that was like, uh, Francis McDormand and John Carroll Lynch got together and like wrote the backstory of Marge and Norm. And the idea of their backstory was um, they met as police officers. They were both police officers. And then when they got married, um, Norm quit because they agreed that Marge was the better cop. And so she would continue her career in the police force and, and Norm would go to painting mallards instead. So, yeah, you touched on one of my conspiracy theories, Terry, um, because that is not the way I understood those characters because I don't know how Mike Yanagina would know who Norm son of a Gunderson is if they met at the police force. So I always just sort of assumed that Norm and Margie were high school sweethearts. Well, Brainerd's a small town. That's true. That is true. They probably, they, they might have started dating when they were police officers, but knew each other in high school. And it does explain how Norm has such a casual rapport with all the other officers. Um, right. But, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a possibility, but I like to think of them as high school sweethearts. Who would Nicolas Cage play? Uh. My obvious choice is Gayer. Oh, no. That's not obvious. I th- I think so. I was I think thinking either Carl's Shep, obvious. Carl or Shep. <laughs> He'd be odd. I, I think I think just because I watched Cage him play like a, a like a guy who just got out of prison. <laughs> like obviously Shep seems like seems like a good one. Speaking of Nicholas Cage, Todd, have you watched the first episode of History of Curse Words? I have not. Ah, oh, we got We got to get on that. We got to get on that. I know the new new show on Netflix: History of Curse Words, hosted by Nicholas Cage. 
The truth is Nicolas anyway. Cage could have played any role in this movie. Maybe not Mike Yanagina or Jose Feliciano, but I feel like any other character he probably could have played. Well, Jose Feliciano, he got no complaints. So That's true. Can't can't get entertainment like this anywhere. All right. Now let's get into highest war performance and the rest of our uh, deep dive superlatives here. Uh, Zach, who's your highest war? Well, you know, in history, we have some great combinations. We got, you know, the combination of Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Kobe and Shaq, Lennon and McCartney, Woodward and Bernstein, Jared Goff and John Wolford. I think in the echelon of great teammates in the history of movies, it's Francis McDormand and William H. Macy. I defy you to find a movie with two... The two lead performances have higher wars. It's just not possible. So I'm going to do a little bit of a, a deterrence. I'm going to call out the Robert Ori of this this movie, and that is Peter Stormare as Gare Grimsrud. Um, he's amazing in this movie. Uh, uh, you know, Francis McDormand and William H. Macy have dialogue in this movie. Peter Stormare does have dialogue, but it's so limited that it has to make, you know, this big impact. And it does every time he opens his mouth. I love all of his mannerisms. I love how, like, this time I noticed how, like, when Steve Buscemi puts down the $40,000 on the table when he's at, at, at when, they're, when they're at the Moose Lake Lodge, I love how Peter Stormare just takes out his fork. And it's like he kind of kind of pushes it around a little bit, like, like it's some sort of, like, uh, you know, organism that he's about to dissect. I love that. And, um, you know, when you watch him at the end of this movie, when Marge gives that speech at the end and, the, you know, they, kind of, they do like a close up of his face. I think the low key argument about his character is he's really not that bad of a guy. Like he realizes that he shouldn't have been in this life of crime. All he wanted was some pancakes and probably some company and to watch a soap opera. The guy really just had simple demands. And uh, Peter Stormer is amazing. That's a good call. I mean, he... he... There's no one really like Peter Stormare, and it hasn't really been since either. So, which reminds me, you need to watch Prison Break because uh, I haven't heard that before. Peter Stormare, okay, I'll consider it. Peter Stormare in Prison Break is amazing. John Abruzzi, John Abruzzi, um, John Abruzzi. Uh, all right, let's see here. Todd, you're next. Uh, so yeah, if we're not going with Mitch Macy, Francis McDormand, I'll say Steve Revis as Shep. Just because he had, like, a lockdown on that character for, like, a decade. Like, he, like all the way until through, like, The Longest Yard, he was still playing that same role. And it's hard to picture other people doing that, especially around, you know, 96 to 2005. It's a good call. That is a good call. So my, my highest Maybe score, I'm Green. going... St- Sorry. I'll, I'll go, yeah. uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll go Steve Buscemi. Uh, I... I I read somewhere that this role was written specifically for him and you know, anywhere from Fargo to Reservoir Dogs to anything he's done since Steve Buscemi is a one of a kind and kind of impossible to replace uh, in a lot of, I mean this whole cast, that's why I said this is the hardest category. You can go with so many different people because everyone is perfectly cast in their parts and they, they are so iconic and perfect for those roles that it's hard to think of anybody else. So I'll say Steve Buscemi, but I mean, your guys' picks are great too. So a couple notes about Peter Stormare. Do you know where the Coens first saw Peter Stormare? I thought this was really fascinating. I don't. He, I was, per- he was performing Hamlet <laughs> as Hamlet. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
Where? And then, uh, <laughs> like, like somewhere in New York, I think, or and um, and uh, yeah, I think, yeah. And then um, they originally cast; they wanted him to be in Miller's Crossing, but he had scheduling conflicts because of his performance of Hamlet. And they looked at him and said, "You know what that guy is? <laughs> that guy is the head of the nihilists in Big Lebowski. That's what he is." <laughs> Wow. Wow, that's that's impressive. Uh, okay. So, maybe this is the hardest category. Worst performance in Fargo. Uh, Todd, you're first. Worst performance. Uh, there I have two. Uh, I'll go, I I don't I'll go with Bruce Bone as Lou. Just because I don't think that character was supposed to be that dumb. I feel like he doesn't really belong in the cast because his, his, like, timing is a little off. Like, I think it, the scenes are funny because McDormand and her comedic timing and her sarcasm. I don't think it's because of Lou. And I, I think he kind of... I, I think there could have been somebody that, that, that could have made that role a little bit more interesting. Because I feel like his comedic timing is just a little off. That's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, my my worst performance. I'm gonna go with uh, Larry Brandenburg as Stan Grossman. Uh, he might be the most boring random side character in a Coen Brothers movie ever. Um, he just kind of shows up and he's just like, uh, the numbers look good, and that I mean, he he I don't know. He just didn't feel. If I have to go with someone, that's a terrible that's choice. That's who I'm gonna go. With. Yeah, it, that's who I'm Stan going with. Stan Grossman is an amazing character in this movie, and I think that actor actually is in a real is he was my second choice for highest war. If we're not going Macy or, or <laughs> McDormand, because I really can't picture anyone else in that role. He's he's perfect. Oh, I uh, he's a very replaceable role, and I think other people could have made it a little more interesting. Ouch! Shots fired. All right, what about you, Zach? All right, well, speaking of shots fired, um, you know, it, it's really impossible to pick any bad performance in this movie. I'm going to go for with one of the people who dies in this movie, and that is J. Todd Anderson as the victim in the field, because he's really only in the movie for about three seconds. But I always thought that um, he looks like he's wearing, like, um, a uh, Oscar Mayer Wiener suit when he drives by the shooting. And he's like, give me that, oh! he's, he's giving like such a shocked reaction. It's very like over the top a little bit. Probably a role that also could have been pre- played by Chris Farley. I know I brought that up for another role in the last podcast, but like basically to me, he's channeling Chris Farley. And um, it makes me wonder like, where are those kids? First of all, where who, who are those people? Like what, where are they coming from? Are they coming from a Gophers game? I don't know, but um, just a, a little a little too, too much. Less is more with that performance. I always thought he kind of looked like Danny Tamborelli. He probably could have played that role. <laughs> the, the easy yes. one I thought was to- Tony Denman as Scotty, because he's he's terrible and he, he's like he's a, atrocious, like blubbering. And I mean, he he's like acting like an eight year old, even though he's clearly like sixteen or seventeen or something. I got, I think he's horrible. That's terrible. You're not. You're. Are you telling me that he's worse in this than he was in Little Big League? Come on. He was in Little Big League. Yeah, he was the main kid in that in Little Big League, wasn't he? No. 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 Am I? No. Oh, okay. Then I'm making stuff up. Never mind. I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm making. No, yeah, he he is in Little Big League. I'm looking at his IMDb right now. I guess he's not the main kid though, but he was in it. Make no mistake about it. 
plays Phil. Yeah, Phil. I mean, he was terrible as Phil, right? I don't know. I don't remember. Well, I don't know what character it is. <laughs> Terry should know. Anyway, it's his favorite movie. I. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have. I'll, I'll have to go back and look. I'll have to figure that out. Okay. I always well, thought let, he was the main kid from on. Little Big League. Well, I I've been educated. Okay. All right. Now, we're figuring this out now. So it looks Scotty like he's in, in Fargo. Looks like he's like in the the scene in the lot where they play baseball or something. He was also oh. the kid in Angus, but not Angus. So not young Jonah Hill. figuring this out this, can, can, listen can we can we call out wally 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 you you probably know this man like you've seen little big league haven't you like come on help us out here you can tell us where the beers appear in that movie and who tony shepherd plays in <laughs> little big league tony denman excuse uh, me uh, okay and i have no idea where he is in little big league okay but if he if he's one of those stickball kids, I mean that makes sense. Where where, uh, where James Bond goes in place? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or Tim Bond, isn't it? Tim Bond. Does he say Tim Bond? I think he does. Or Bill Bond, because his name's Billy. I don't know. Billy Bond. Nah, looks nothing like him. Okay. We we should deep dive a little big league. I'd be up for that. All right. Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller, minor character of the film award. I'm going first on this one. And my pick, uh, this has been my pick like ever since I first saw the movie. And it's like a perfect example of how great they can be at just making a, a little one-off, one-scene minor character amazing. So I'm going with Bane Bulky as Mr. Mora, yes. who is the, the bartender. Great pick. Uh, so I'm tending bar there at Eckland and Swedland's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can I guy get some action? I mean, just the way he says it and his cadence and the, the whole thing and... Because um, you don't even know his story's uh, over. He has to say end of story because, like, there's no reaction because, like, oh, that was it. <laughs> and she thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. <laughs> <laughs> he's he is he is like the perfect example of what the Coens can do with just this tiny tiny little part and it becomes one of the most memorable parts of the entire movie. Like ever since I remember him from the first time I watched him like that guy is my favorite guy in this movie. And so uh he's still my favorite minor character. All in one take right. too. No yeah. cutting. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that, but yes, that's amazing too. <laughs> Except he didn't use the word jerk. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, Todd, who's your favorite? Uh, I was going with Stan Grossman. Uh, I think, I, I mean, I love it. He's just like, I mean, you're saying, what are you saying? Like, like I don't. I, I love his facial expressions. That, that his character becomes a character of Little Miss Sunshine. And that actor is awesome. Like I remember, but every time I see him, I'm like, oh, that's that's the guy who interrogates Scott Calvin in the Santa Claus. But like, this is a better character <laughs> than that, obviously. Sam wow, Wilson is, is one of my favorite parts. Oh my word, he is. Conspiracy theory. Worlds <laughs> are colliding. Santa Claus. All right, 
Zach, who's yours? Oh, so many characters to choose from. I think I'm going to go with Larissa Kokromnot and Melissa Peterman as hookers number one and two. Yes, that was my next uh, choice. They went to Shaska and Lesur, but I went to high school in White Bear Lake. Go Bears! And uh, the, the, the little guy, he was just kind of funny looking, not even in the way that normal people are funny looking. And then the other one has some issue with um, some sort of latent adolescent fantasy about sexual fantasy about the Marlboro Man. That is that's that's straight up Minnesota shit. I mean, where in the world do people have sexual fantasies about the Marlboro Man? I, I, especially like, you know, a girl who's like 20 years old. That's that's uh, that's amazing acting right there. And um, I also, you know, they're fans of The Tonight Show. Give him props for that too. So they're they're amazing. Do they? So I didn't I didn't notice it until this time, but um, and it was because I was watching it with my wife and she spotted it. So one of my wife's favorite like have on in the background shows just to have noise on is the show Reba, starring Reba McIntyre. Did you guys ever ever watch any of oh, that show? Is I that did. the is that the the daughter? No. So hooker number two is like the best friend. Oh wow! In in Reba, Melissa Peterman. She was also so, in Here Comes the Boom, the uh, the Kevin James uh, boxing movie. <laughs> yeah, Barbara Jean. So she went from being like as Midwestern, uh, Upper Midwest, Great Lakes region as you can, Cope Bears, to being someone named Barbara Jean. I mean, it, yeah. It's, okay, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay, that makes. Yeah, sense. as as uh, stereotypically southern as you could possibly get. So she's got some range on her. And she was in the Method Man movie How High um, with Redman, and she played a character named um, I I can't remember her name, but she was in uh, How High. So she's got range. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Zach, why don't you uh, why don't you hit us with uh, Stickman, uh, best Stickman, biggest Stickman? Oh, not best, what is it? Best stick, Stickman, biggest Stickman? What are we? I forget how we normally define it. Not a lot of Stickman candidates in this movie, and I really feel like Mike Yanagina gets negative Stickman points. Um, <laughs> is that can that be a category too? Can we get negative Stickman up up in here? Um, but I think the obvious answer is, um, the only character who we know has got, well, actually, I guess we could, you know, we know Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare got it in, but they had to, you know, they had to pay for, um, you know, what they, they had to act as customers. So let's go someone with actual... How long have you been in the escort service? You find that work interesting? <laughs> let's go with someone with actual stickman experience. Someone who's able to get the puck past the goalie, so to speak, for using hockey metaphors for this hockey-driven movie, and that is Bruce Campbell as a soap opera actor. Uh, he oh, damn you, Zach. He, he, you know, <laughs> uh, he, listen, I, the guy's getting it in, and um, it's it's pretty dramatic. Wasn't expecting it. That soap opera is almost like the first 20 minutes of Knocked Up. Ugh. That was my pick. Oh, yeah. I mean, right, that's the well, of course. It's the, 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 he's the only yeah. stick man. Todd, how about you? Well, we know Norm got it in at least once, right? I mean, I guess you could say him. I, I was also thinking about Shep, but I also think he might be gay, so I'm not really sure how that works. <laughs> you, you know, when you think about it in this context, the, the line that Norm made some eggs takes on a whole new uh, meaning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Norm made some eggs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, you have anybody else, Todd? No, I mean I don't. I I, okay. I you know I don't have anybody else. <laughs> well, uh, I, as in my uh, in my uh, needing to find somebody else, I'm gonna go with Jose Feliciano. Because, uh, I don't know, when you're with Jose Feliciano, you got no complaints. My second place was um, the animal um, bark beetle. Because that probably gets... There's probably lots of sex going on with that insect. Uh, that they're watching on TV. That's a, that's a good call, too. Alright, Todd, who's the Billy Bats douchebag? Uh, man, there are a lot. Uh, I'm gonna go with parking lot attendant the second one because you can tell just by his one line he's a douche and i actually think he what? did deserve to die <laughs> that's the biggest douchebag he's a bit of a hipster douche like not a not a traditional one with his thick rim glasses he probably watches battlestar galactica he doesn't seem like so now a what's good great hip- about this is it was on zach this was on your unwarranted deaths list last week yeah, okay, well, I guess I should admit, I confused the two parking lot attendants. I guess it's been a long time since I, I saw the movie, but I assumed that the bald guy was the guy that got shot. I forgot that it was the hipster doofus that got shot, so take that yeah, as a... the bald guy a, actually gets paid, he doesn't get killed. Yeah, he gets $4, he dollars, douche, four big ones. Sure. He can go buy some coffee at the IHOP. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm going with Jerry. Yeah. I mean, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy one. But, I mean, when someone is that douchey, you have to go with him. He, I mean, he might be the worst he, human that we've dipped in about. I, I yeah. think so. Like, we may need to rename this, like, the, the Lundegaard douchebag. Because he is... I mean, he, he concocts a plot to have some guys kidnap his own wife so he can collect the ransom and he's only supposed to be collecting 40,000 and then ends up wanting to collect almost a million I mean this is insane and this might be getting into like conspiracy theory but we never know why he needs the money like it never comes up it's like I got myself into a little bit of trouble and I need the money was keep, he keeps screwing with his his uh, books, right? Isn't that kind of yeah? I th- I feel like that's what the purpose of that scene was, at least in part, was to show that he's maybe embezzling the money. I, it's still a little unclear the three hundred twenty thousand dollars or whatever, but I feel like you could connect that piece to why Jerry needs the money and why a seventy five thousand dollar finder's fee is not satisfactory. Well, see, I thought I thought that scene was kind of referring to the fact that he gave. Uh, Carl and Gay are the car, and so he's got yeah. to cook the books to hide the fact that he just let a car walk off the lot. Yeah, but then why would it be three hundred twenty thousand dollars? That's what that's what the Riley yeah. Diefenbach character says, and he and he repeats it too. He says three hundred twenty thousand dollars, like to tell the audience, okay, that's probably what Jerry owes, or that's probably what what he's out. Well, I think and I think yeah. he's been like giving cars away for cheaper prices, and then writing it up as being the same price. That's like what he was. That's like when he gave the guy the hundred dollar discount or whatever. It's like he wasn't supposed to do that, but he did, and I think he's just taking the loss on all these. I don't know about I th- that. I don't. I thought agree that. With that. I thought that just built. I, I thought that was building up, but I don't know. All right, 
Zach, who's your douchebag? I, you know, Jer- yeah, I don't think Jerry's the most obvious douchebag. He's a douchebag as a car salesman and as a human being, but he is under uh, the tutelage of an even bigger douchebag. We could, we renamed this recently the Billy Bats Biggest Douchebag Award, but we could also name this the Wade Gustafson Biggest Douchebag Award because Wade Gustafson, he's on the Mount Rushmore of movie douches. In fact, I think I've brought him up before when we talked about all-time douches. Like, the guy, you know, is is so rich and yet he won't, uh, you know, get, he, he won't spare a dime um, to, to deal with the, the kidnapping um, he has contempt for his son-in-law, although really who can blame him? Um, you know, he, the douchiest thing though, is the whole parking lot thing. And, and the whole, the whole like purpose of that scene, I think is to generate some sort of sympathy for Jerry Lundegaard, because in that, that's the one scene in the movie where you're kind of like, okay, Jerry Lundegaard just got one upped in his douchiness by his stupid ass father-in-law. And I also love when he's driving to the parking lot, which is ironic and poetic that that's where he ultimately succumbs to to his fate. Um, And he's like, okay, you punk asshole. That guy's totally watched Clint Eastwood his whole life, and oh, he's yeah. trying to invoke, like, Dirty Harry. And, like, he's terrible at using a gun. Like, what the hell? You just allow Steve Buscemi to shoot you like that? I don't know. He's a total douchebag. Maybe the Michael Jordan of douche, douches in movie history. Okay, I don't agree with that at all. Like, I I don't think he's a douchebag. And that scene when, when, they, uh, when they tell him that he's only getting his finder's fee, that is the part that I have no sympathy for Jerry because... That is the part that makes Jerry the biggest douche ever, because that is the most narcissistic idea ever, that they would just give him money to invest. True, true. I mean, and, that's a, that's that a is fair not point. a problem with Wade. Like, what, that's why both of them are like, wait, what are you saying? Like, you just want us to give you this money so you can make money and then give us, you'll give us the money back? Like, what? It's not about your damn word, Jerry. If you want a loan, go see old Bill Deal at North Star Bank. I also think great, that actor was a bigger line. douche in Mr. Deeds. Yeah, so, so I was looking up Harvey Presnell's um, career. Apparently, he was a singer who had not done a whole lot of movies prior to Fargo. He was in, I think, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. I have a hard time imagining him as like a singer and performer, but um, he is also ex- super, super high on the highest war performances. I'm sorry none of us brought him up, but uh, hard to recast that role too, or see anyone else as that character. I would say his douchiest moment is when uh, he looks at, or he looks at Jerry, and there's some, or the, I forget what what the conversation is, and and he talks. He meant Jerry mentions money, and Gene and uh, Scotty have and nothing to worry Wade about. Wade says, "Yeah, Gene and Scotty never have to worry about money." And it's like, well, thanks for that, Dad. <laughs> he also call, I mean he also calls out Tony Denman going to McDonald's. What's wrong with McDonald's? Oh, nothing's wrong, Dad. They're just hanging out. Oh, back in there, not doing a whole whole lot more than drinking milkshakes. Dick. (laughs) Tony Denman is just looking for some fun antics playing baseball at McDonald's and accordion playing. That's all. I know, and his own dad even forgets about him. He's like... He's like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Scotty, I should do something about that. <laughs> that that <laughs> adds up to, to, <laughs> to Macy's douchiness. That's a that's a solid point as well. <laughs> All right. What's the best scene in this? Let's go to Zach first. What's the best scene in Fargo? Oh wow. Um that is a really tough question. Let's see. I th- hmm. I think the scene 
that I like the best. If I had, if this movie was separated out into YouTube clips, yeah, screw it. I, I, I really don't know because every single scene in this movie is great. There's not a single scene in this movie that is unnecessary, excessive, poorly written or flawed. I think the scene I'd have to go with is, um, I mean, I used to show this movie when I was teaching at, at the university. I would show the scene when Marge uh, get, is woken up uh, when, the, when she gets the phone call. But I would actually go with the scene immediately after that when she finds the bodies and investigates them with Lou. That scene to me is priceless. That captures the essence of this movie. It captures the essence of Marge. I love how she's, you know, like Columbo, she's able to, to, to deduce um, every single detail of the murders right away, right away. And it doesn't feel fake at all. It doesn't feel like, oh, they're just, it, that, that's a contrivance that the, that the screen screenplay has. Um, you, you get to know the character, it's funny, it's shot really well, and uh, she's got morning sickness. You see, some of her vulnerabilities it's an amazing amazing scene that's a good that's a good scene that's a good scene uh the one i'm gonna go with is uh the interview that jerry flees um it's you really get the sense of what's going on there i mean marge doesn't necessarily go in there thinking that there's stuff going on and 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 things are 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 you know there's a problem with Jerry in that moment. However, she definitely realizes it along the way. And you finally see Jerry caught in a lie that he can't get out of. Because Marge just sees right through his BS. And, I mean, possibly my favorite line. He's fleeing the interview! He's fleeing the interview! It's it's just it's just great how, how she performs that line and... How both of them perform that whole scene. I, I love that scene. Todd, how about you? Uh, I think my favorite scene is when uh, Gare and Carl get pulled over. Because I feel like that scene extended to when uh, uh, Gare ends up killing the, the two other dudes. Like you, you get to know everything about those characters that you need to. Like The way Buscemi reacts to the cop getting shot, he just sits there and he's like, Oh, daddy. It's like the weirdest <laughs> line, and I'm, it's like I, but, but it, like that, I love that, I lo- and uh, and then Gare just can't stop yelling at Gene to shut up, and I, I think it's funny that Steve Buscemi's teeth, I feel like, are what freaked out the officer the most, like because because he kept trying to smile and he realized his teeth were all screwed up, but he because he's super funny looking, so he kept sucking his, his teeth back into his mouth. Uh, I I don't know. It's a great it's a great scene, and you get to see how terrifying Peter Stormare is. Like he he's like a machine. He's like Terminator meets Anton Chigurh, and uh, and he as he goes and takes those, those people. And also, characters in this movie are really terrible at running into fields, avoiding getting shot because yes. serpentine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good call. Terminator meets Anton Chigurh. I like that. I yeah. like that. <laughs> Uh, all right. Any uh, any conspiracy theories here, Zach? I know you said you had something. Or well, are we doing flaws too? Can we search? Oh yeah, Fla- flaws, outdated conspiracy theories, things like that. Okay, so a few things I want to bring up. Um, Nineteen thousand five hundred dollars for a new Buick in nineteen eighty seven. That seems a bit excessive. Although I do have to say, you know, Buicks are the shittiest uh, cars. With all due apologies to Shaquille O'Neal, um, who I, I hope is being Buick. paid. Really. Did yeah, it break it's down? It's the best car ever. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, touche. <laughs> I think they're shit. <laughs> I think it's sort of a perfect car for this movie, though, so I'll forgive them. Um, 
I feel like the accordion king on Scotty's wall is a member of John Candy's polka troupe in Home Alone. Nice. There's got to be it. some kind of regional Midwestern connection polka, there. Polka, polka. Um, I have no idea how Shep finds Carl Showalter when he's with the hooker. <laughs> right, like, yeah, I was thinking that too. He found him <laughs> super fast too. So how does I mean, he know he's is... at that random hotel banging a hooker at that moment? Like That <laughs> made no sense at all. Um, and it kind of goes along a little bit with one of the flaws that I've always had in this movie the last 20 years, which is it's not really clear how some of these characters know each other. Like, how, how does Shep Proudfoot... How does Jerry ever actually talk to Shep Proudfoot and engage him in this scheme? Um, it's unclear to me how Shep knows Gare Grimsrud, and it's really unclear to me how Gare and Carl know each other. Were they? Oh, was that was that a line? It's Stillwater Prison or whatever. Yeah, he he, he well, yells at it. He yells at him something about go back to Stillwater or, or you're going back to Stillwater. Okay, that makes sense that they were in prison together. But I don't understand how Gare Grimswood and Carl know each other. Although maybe oh, they I went to that. prison. Yeah. That 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 could maybe make sense. Um, I love the Playboy magazine in Jerry's bathroom. It's kind of like the, this movie's version of the newest edition of Barely Legal. And then the biggest flaw that I have with this movie, watching it again, and I haven't watched it in a while. Um, is it just seems like it's very casual the whole day of the murders. Like, Marge is like, oh yeah, we're gonna go get some night crawlers for Norm, we're gonna go get some Arby's. Like, I get that they want to show this woman being a badass who's in charge of everything and she is able to understand the murder right away, but I feel like the murder of a state trooper and two bystanders would be a huge deal like think about the movie insomnia for a second which also takes place in the north and snow like that movie's about one murder and the yokels in the town are so stupid and bad at police work that they have to bring in al pacino like i get that marge is a great policewoman but let's not be so casual like this would be a huge freaking ordeal for the town of brainerd I, and and even mike yanagina says later that he read about the whole story in the papers so um as cool as a cucumber as marge is i still feel like there would have been some big city pressure on this small town to solve the murder instead of like going to arby's and getting night crawlers well do you think it was partially because she knew right away that the people weren't from brainerd like she's like i guarantee these people aren't from brainerd you think it's just like this is some out of city thing so she wasn't like if it was like what like locals got killed other than the cop which yeah that was a little cavalier how they did that <laughs> yeah i mean you know I, I i think that's fair also when does she have time to buy a dress or new clothes to meet up with mike yanagina like don't tell me that she brought that outfit with her to minneapolis like again that's just like you know it seems like she has some leisure time to go shopping and hey you know what, what's good in town by the way any any city where the best place in town to get food is a radisson you know you're running into problems. <laughs> True. Okay, so the one thing I thought of, and you kind of brought it up a little bit, kind of a flaw slash, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, something I didn't realize until this time watching the movie uh, is that Shep vouches for Gayer, not for Carl. And I, it always felt like Carl was the run, one running the show, and Geyer was the wild card that was brought in that nobody knew what was going to happen with. Yet, it's the other way around. Geyer is the one that Shep vouches for, and Carl is the one that nobody knows anything about. And then it doesn't make any sense then that Shep will go and beat the crap out of Carl. He has no idea who Carl is. Why is he going to find Carl to, to beat him up? He should be going to find Geyer because he's the one that 
that vouch or that that he vouched for. I think he knew that and he's screwing this up. Screw it up, and he knew that <laughs> the other guy would. Uh, maybe, but I, had I to have met it him always when felt were, like when he was uh, arranging the whole thing. Must have, but it always felt like I always thought that Shep vouched for Carl just by the way they they uh, just interact with each other, the way the whole thing plays out. It always felt like Carl was the one that was that was brought into this and brought Gayer in for the muscle, but Shep vouched for Gayer, and it just it I didn't notice that until this time. In fact, I almost made it a trivia question. Which one did, did Shep actually vouch for? But, uh, yeah, he vouched for Gare, and that doesn't make any sense. It feels like he should have vouched for Carl, and Gare was the wild card that was brought in. Yeah. Todd, do you have anything? Uh, you have a few things. Uh, I want to know why Jerry doesn't just, like, take the finder's fee anyway, just so he has something to show for it. And, and that kind of happens again later with Carl, where he could have just gotten away with all the money, $750,000 or a million or whatever it was, but he don't, won't give him an extra, like, ten grand for the car. Like, he's just being an asshole at that point. And it's like, people are just so dumb in this movie. Like, they, they have no, uh, they have no like, perspective, I guess. And uh, both of those things are just baffling. Like, why wouldn't Jerry just take 75 grand? I don't know. Uh, I also think, uh, I, I think the transitions between all the scenes are a little odd. It's, like, really old-fashioned with, like, the fade to black. It's, like, a, it's like, a, like a 1940s, like, noir or something, which I don't know if that was by design, but it's just kind of strange. I also think that Geyer and Carl have a lot of pinky in the brain in there, and I, I think that <laughs> the scene where yes. they're banging the hookers is really reminiscent of the scene, or could have been reminiscent of the scene in, uh, in Forrest Gump where, where they get the hookers as well. Which would be another sort of pinky in the brain kind of odd, weird thing. And I think that the scene where Marge is giving her speech to uh, uh, Gare in the car is basically the exact same speech that she gives to Russell Hammond in Almost Famous. Like, you know, there's more to life than a little money. This is really similar to... Uh, it's not... Is is uh, It's not too late to have, become a person of substance kind of thing. It's like the same speech. I also want to know how... Was the front door unlocked when they got there? Because if so, then why would they bust through the back window and then just walk in the front door? And I mean, they, I suppose it's possible they could pick the lock, but if they could do that, then why didn't they do that to get into the bathroom? Like, I, it makes no sense to me. Like, well, that that scene doesn't add up somewhere, unless unless Jerry gave them the key to his house, which I kind of find unlikely. In which case, why would they come through the back anyway? I, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a lot of that didn't make any sense. You're right. You know, going to your first point about how the characters are stupid, um, so I was watching the making of this movie on the DVD, and they were talking about how the reason, one of the reasons why they, they chose to go with the whole, like, this is based on true story, even though it wasn't, was so that the audiences could suspend disbelief a little bit, I guess in regard to how stupid some of the characters act in this movie. Like, if it's based on a true story, then it has to be understandable why they would act so stupid. I think it's also just a, a symptom of how incredibly cheap Carl is, which is another award that we could give as cheapest character in the movie. He's so cheap that he doesn't even get two hotel rooms when they're banging the prostitutes. Like, that's a little bit incestuous there. <laughs> like, come on, man. Well, they just really, they were doing splurge the on the 30 what, bucks. For a 20 grand each? Like, that... I, I don't know. I don't think... I think they were really desperate for money. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when when Miles comes in and Jack's banging, you know, uh, uh, Sandra O, oh, he's like, later, later, come back later. That's it's just it's just you know courtesy. Well, see, but yeah, I mean, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest did that too, even though Forrest <laughs> never got it in. All right, LVP MVP. Uh, I'll go first on this one. Uh, my LVP, I've got a few things written down here, but I think I'm going to go. My LVP is uh, the true coat. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you, you got to have that true coat. Um, and, and why does he even throw it out there of, as an option when it's put on by the manufacturer at the, at the plant? I mean, it, it, yeah. Anyways, true coat's an LVP in this. And my, uh, my MVP, I'm going to go with John S. Lyons, who is the casting director. For coming up with such a perfect cast for this movie, um, that, that's that's my MVP. Todd, you're next. Uh, my LVP is Steve Buscemi's anonymity. Like, I think he is a terrible criminal because he's so funny looking, and that's all you have to say, and people know exactly who you're talking about. Like, he would never succeed in crime because every eyewitness is going to just say he's funny looking. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. His anonymity is the LVP. And the MVP is Roger Deakins, because I think it's one of the top five best cinematography jobs I've ever seen. And, like, I love this shot. that It just looks like a painting where uh, where uh, uh, Jerry parked his car while he was in having the meeting with, um, you know, about the parking lot thing. It's like, it, it looks like a painting, and all of a sudden you see Jerry walking in from the bottom of the screen. It's just like this beautiful shot. I'm like, wow, that, that actually is what it, is how he actually framed that shot. It's amazing. I, Roger Deakins, MVP. Yeah, hard to argue with that one, too. Zach, how about you? All right, so for my LVP, I went with um, extras on the DVD. Now, granted, I should update this movie to a Blu-ray, but this movie has some really bad DVD extras. The two that I'll point out are actually Roger Deakins' commentary track. I totally agree with you, Todd. The cinematography in this movie is amazing. However, Roger Deakins, not a great commentator. Um, a lot of the time, he's just kind of watching the movie and admiring it, and he's like laughing, like, oh, that's very funny. And, uh, oh, yeah, the, 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 he, his insights are not that deep. Like, he says, oh, yeah, we, we storyboarded this scene. Joel and Ethan like to storyboard. And then, and then, like, nothing for another ten minutes. I know, he kind of seemed like an idiot during all his Oscar speeches and stuff, like, when he won, when he won his Oscar. I was like, man, what? This is the genius? <laughs> so weird. He's such a weird guy. Um, and then there's another uh, uh, extra on the DVD that is clearly modeled off of VH1's Behind the Music in the 90s, which is, like, a pop-up trivia track. I think I've seen this before in some other movies, but this is like the stupidest feature ever. It's like, I was watching it and it's like, Minneapolis is the capital, or Minneapolis is the largest city in Minnesota. It's located to uh, 121 miles from Brainerd. And it's like, um, you know, McDonald's was founded in 1955. Like, it's just terrible. It's a terrible extra. Um, anyway, my uh, MVP, I mean, it has to be the Coen brothers, but, you know, for the sake of argument, I would also go with someone we haven't mentioned yet, and that is Carter Burwell, who did the music. He's yeah. done music for a lot of the Coen brothers movies, and I think this is his best score. Um, I don't even think this got an Oscar nomination, but it's a really great score. If, you, if, if someone were to tell you to, like, find music that sounds like it's negative 20 outside, this would be the music I would choose. I like it. So I, I had a couple more that I wrote down. So my other LVP is the wood chipper. I mean, it just was inefficient. It's, and, a, uh, and, it's a great accomplice, yeah. though. 
True. And then, then uh, my other MVP was the three cent stamp. I mean, it, it, it's it's needed whenever they increase the postage. So, definite MVP there. I also had uh, Paul Bunyan as an MVP candidate. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, Paul Bunyan, babe, the blue ox. Uh, all right. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Let's wrap this up. Zach, you won trivia. You get to go first. Um, okay, so my quote of the day comes from Nicolas Cage, and uh, who is not in Fargo, but he has a quote that I think is applicable to Fargo. And he said... I'm not a demon. I'm a lizard, a shark, a heat-seeking panther. I want to be Bob Denver on acid playing the accordion. And the accordion is why it's a relevant quote, but um, I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Todd, how about you go next? Uh, my quote comes from Carl, and it's really just... Uh, he says, I want to go to a place where I get a shot and a beer, a steak maybe, not more pancakes. And that is just me, like, my thoughts exactly, all the time. Yeah, that is something you'd say. Yeah. That is something you would say, you're yeah. right. Uh, so, so my quote is also from Fargo, and uh, I think this is something that uh, uh, crosses my mind quite often. This is during uh, Zach's favorite scene of when they discover the bodies and they're investigating. And uh, Marge has a quick bout of morning sickness, and then, it, and, and then she says, Well, that passed! Now I'm hungry again. And yep. I have that thought quite often. <laughs> I just think I'm going to barf. Yeah. But yeah, it's, well, now I'm hungry again. And so there you go. That's that's my quote. You got All Arby's right, on with me. That, <laughs> with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you guys so much for, for listening. Uh, make sure you uh, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, tell your friends about us. Uh, we'll be back at you soon. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs>